Hi, I'm Amy. And I'm Melanie. We are so excited to welcome you to our new podcast, Talk to Us at Bounce English. Hey Mel, why don't you tell us a little bit about this podcast? Each episode, we talk with guests about the impact of COVID-19 and new technology on the future of teaching, education, and learning. And our first season is all about ESL, baby. That's English as a second language for the uninitiated, or third language, or fourth language. So subscribe now to talk to us at Bounce English on your favorite podcast software, or listen from our website, www.bounceenglish.rocks. Yay! Let's keep in touch. Let's keep in touch. Keep in touch with me. So Melanie, who do we have with us today? Uh, we have Chris Griffith. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you're doing these days? Uh, sure. So my background is in English language teaching and I did a CELTA, I want to say 10 years ago, but I think it's probably more like 12 or 13 at this point. Wow. Um, five. Time really does fly. I basically moved straight to Australia after teaching at, sorry, after graduating university. Uh, and I taught foundation English there um, for a year at a private language school, but one that was connected to like the University of New South Wales, University of Sydney. And basically if you did one of our programs and completed it successfully, you got direct entry into, um, into those schools. Um, and that was a pretty fascinating experience. Um, generally but I think it's maybe different than a lot of people's initial teaching experiences for example if you were to teach and go to straight to Korea or straight to Japan which a lot of people tend to do you are basically in a classroom with only Korean or only Japanese students whereas I was in a classroom with this multinational crew so we did have a lot of Koreans and a lot of Japanese students but we also had a lot of um, Brazilians, a lot of I think Colombians as well. And as you moved higher up the levels, you also started to get a few um, expat Europeans in there as well. So some French, some German, some Swiss. Um, and the classroom was just this delightful melting pot of different nationalities. And it was kind of interesting to learn how different different countries or different nationalities learn uh, differently. Yes, so, yes, yeah. because learning is cultural. So I feel it like really this is. Is something people don't, I, it, it's a weird thing because when you're growing up, you assume like the way you're learning what's happening in your class and like the rules, the rules Absolutely. that are both kind of said and unsaid are like universal. But the truth is they, they totally aren't. I mean, even for, for you and for you and me, like I obviously went through the American school system and you went through the British one and yep. they're too done. <laughs> Other two countries separated by a common language, but I feel like that is that is often something that's difficult for people is the cultural differences that take place in classrooms. Sure. But that said, to me, there's no better place to explore them than uh, in a multicultural classroom. I love multicultural classrooms because it's just so exciting. You learn I agree. from everyone. Yeah, Chris, yeah. what were what were some of the things that you took away from that? Like um, <clears throat> any tips or techniques that you used or just just aha moments that you had as you were teaching multicultural students all in one class? I think the first piece of advice that I could give anybody who's entering a multicultural classroom for the first time is to actually split up the different nationalities or the different languages 
um, within a classroom so that you're mixing them all together. So I learned quite quickly that Asian students tend to be very quiet and very reserved in the classroom. So if you pair them up with, for example, somebody from South America, where they're very, very talkative, it kind of balances out somewhere in the middle. Um, so that would bring some of like the, um, the, the Asian students like a bit more out of the shell. They felt more comfortable uh, talking, but it also maybe dialed down some of the extrovertedness of some of the South American students that I used to have. So if you, you can kind of draw on the strengths and challenges from each of those countries by mixing them up. I think that, that comes back to classroom culture again, because in many Asian countries, um, the, the, it's sort of like the teacher is, is really the boss and you are yeah. meant to listen until the teacher tells you to. So it's, it's actually like a completely different way of, of doing your class. Um, I mean, I have found if, if you're teaching a group of students, sometimes you have to train them in terms of the fact, well, how am I trying to say this? Oh, that you are allowed to interrupt your teacher. You are allowed to ask questions. This is like a new thing. So it takes some students from some cultures a, a while to get uh, used to. But to be fair, I think many students around the world love grammar. And I have a belief it's because they can quantify it. They can check it off a list. Like, tick, I learned the present perfect. Tick, I learned past simple. Tick, I learned this. Um, whereas other skills like fluency and pronunciation are less quantifiable. That is very, uh, that is very, very true. And after Australia, I moved to the Middle East which again, like within the Middle East, there are so many different cultures, but when it comes to learning, the cultures are quite similar, I would say. Yeah. Um, and they rely heavily on rote learning as well, but they have a love-hate relationship, I think, with grammar. And I'm not sure if, Mel, you found this when you taught here in the UAE, um, but students were like, oh, I want, to, I want to learn grammar. Like, I want you to teach me a different tense every day of the week. And it's like, <laughs> hold your horses, because I can do that. In theory, we can do that, but you're not going to have no, time feel yeah. to feel comfortable doing all of the things and to put all of that into practice before you move on to the next thing. Like you're being a little bit over overexcited. That's not really realistic in terms of learning. It sounds like a great idea. Like in theory, again, I think it comes back to that quantifying like, yes, yeah, I learned this today. But in, in practice, if you did that with students, they would hate it. Like it's, it's, it's a real, I feel like there's a balance because on the one hand, you do know something's better than they do, right? You just do. Like, you know, the student may want to learn 50 words in a day, but the teacher knows that's way too much. It's going to be completely overwhelming and you're not going to remember all of them very effectively. On the other hand, of course, what the student wants to do is is also paramount. Like it, I, I feel like there's a balance between uh, letting the student have their voice and saying like, I know better than you do in this case because I've been doing this for X many years and I know it's gonna help you. But I guess that's the co-creation of teaching as I like to think of it. I also think especially for adult learners, there is a temptation to say, okay, I've learned these, you know, techniques, I'm, I'm ready now, I can just do it. You know, if you learn to play guitar, and you learn three chords, 
just because you can play three chords doesn't mean you can necessarily play a song. You have to practice, you have to get the muscle memory in and languages like that as well. I remember I was teaching my nephew how to crochet and, you know, he was so excited and like we got to the second and third row and he said to me, I've mastered this now. <laughs> so, whoa, 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 whoa. Just you, can do, you know, you can do the movement and you can pull the thread through doesn't mean that you're a master, you know, needle crafts person yet. But it was such a funny, like, because I think that a lot of people do think that way. I do. You've mastered, you know, memorizing terms, but you can't necessarily use them. Yes, that's actually, wow, nailed it. That's a big part of language learning is like knowing what something is, but not necessarily knowing how to use it. But I was going to say another thing that I really noticed when I was teaching out there is, you know, there is a tendency, and I want to be very careful with what I'm saying, because obviously you can make generalizations and they never fit everybody or all students. But I have noticed, I'm going to say broadly in cultures where there are people who can hire a lot of service people to help them, cleaners, uh, maids, nannies, etc. I found there's a tendency to treat teachers in a similar way. Like you are going to teach me English. You're going to teach me in grammar point every yes. day, but that's not really how teaching works. No, <laughs> it's hard to generalize, but I have also found that here as well. Um, it's the idea of, well, I've, well, I'm on this course. And in some cases I have paid for this course. So I automatically learn and it's your job to teach me. It's your job to make sure that I pass. And there's an element of truth to that, but at the same yeah. time, people don't appreciate the fact that it's actually a two-way street. And if you, the student, don't do the work that you're supposed to do, then you won't actually improve. And to be fair, I think anybody who's paying for teaching is going to feel a little bit like that. Like I'm paying for this, so now you're gonna do that. And I think there's a point there, you know, I mean, there are many different styles of teaching. So if you are making the choice to pay a teacher or pay for private lessons or something like that, you should be getting teaching that you find effective and you like and you like the teacher. That's, that's actually true. There is a point there. But what I find interesting is that I have a few friends who are not e like who are not English teachers, but they're like primary school teachers here. So mm -hmm. like um, elementary school. Um, but because most of the schools in this country are private um, because of the expat population, there's this certain pressure there from the parents that stems back to, we're paying for this, so make it happen. Yes, yes. It's, it, it's hard to treat education like a business. It is, that, that is a big conflict. You know, is it a is it a service? Is it a business? Is it both? I mean, I, I like this idea of co-creation. I, I forgot. Somebody said this to me, and I think it was actually when I was in the UAE. They did this exercise with their students where they asked, like, if you're paying for school, what are you paying for? Are you paying for the service? As I said, like service of a teacher? Are you paying to be there? What is the product? And this person's argument was that the students themselves, they are the product ultimately. And I thought that was a great way to look at it because it is really kind of true. Like at the, you know, what's your ultimate aim? Your ultimate aim is to be able to do certain things in, in this case, English. It's a co-creation again. I feel like I sound very hippie as yes, I do live in California. Um, <laughs> 
So tell us a little bit more, you know, you were kind of telling us about your background and we sort of went on a tangent. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Dubai and, and what you're doing now. So I'd never intended to go into teaching forever. Um, and I've always been honest about that. And I, re I really enjoyed it. I really loved being in the classroom with my students. Um, and I love like the rapport that we built up. And I love the fact that it was a very satisfying job. Uh, you, you know, you get to, you get to teach people at the end of the day, they will like, you can see them go off and like, use what you've taught them and use that to make their own lives better. So it's very, very fulfilling. But I always wanted to do something different. And to be quite honest, I was never particularly sure what that was. And I'm still not even sure what that was. And I am how many years into my career at this point? Um, I feel I like if I could do it. The majority of people. <laughs> it's the majority of people, but nobody wants to admit it. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Nobody wants to admit it. But what I actually do is um, publishing. So after four or five years in the teaching field, I had all this teaching experience and thought it would be fun to move into something more creative. And I don't even feel like I've made that jump fully yet. Um, but the logical step to get there was to go into educational publishing. So I started out as a consultant, which is effectively a sales based role. And I've had different roles in that time. Um, and I've worked for two different ELT publishing houses or like educational publishing houses um, over the past seven to eight years. So I started out in a purely sort of sales oriented role. I moved into product uh, development and market development. So customizing some of the, um, the international content for the local market. And that was fascinating. That was really, really fascinating. So to actually to take, to take content that had been created for an international market and then bring it to teachers on the ground across uh, the Middle East and say, hey, how can we make this better for you? So and what were some of the differences? Because I mean, I, I think that was a real, that was something I really noticed when I was teaching in the Middle East was that, you know, most of those materials are created in London or in Cambridge or Oxford. And yeah. that's great. And sure. they do definitely, you do definitely get a multinational crowd, multicultural crowd for your classes in the UK, but for a monolingual, monocultural class that you'd be teaching in the UAE or Saudi Arabia or Bahrain or someplace like that, those materials do not necessarily work. There's lots of things that can be problematic. You're absolutely right. And what's interesting is the, when you think about it, most of the world learns in a monolingual classroom. Yes. Unless you're fortunate enough to be able to travel to the US or to the UK or Australia to learn English, you're going to be in a monolingual classroom. Hmm. Um, but you're right. We, we in some ways cater to the minority when we create English language teaching materials. We're creating stuff for those students who are studying in the UK or who are studying in the US. Um, and you're right, it doesn't always work locally. So there are some linguistic challenges that you would want to consider if you're localizing content for a course book, because when you're creating for the mass market and you're, you know, looking at students who are, in, who are 
Spanish speakers or French speakers or like Japanese speakers, you really, it's like, you can't focus on challenges for any one of those languages because it just wouldn't be fair. So in localizing it for the Gulf, what we can actually do is focus purely on challenges that are faced by Arabic speaking learners of English. Mm. So you can tailor the grammar um, sections to them so you can give them extra practice on things like prepositions or the verb to be because it doesn't exist in Arabic, for example. So things where they struggle, you can make sure there's extra resources there or extra support for them. Those are interesting <laughs> examples. Is there any, was there anything when you were doing the product development, any like very interesting thing that you thought, oh, we have to deal with this for the local market, just something that might be unexpected? It was, so one of the more interesting projects that I got to work on was localizing a, an already localized book. So further localizing a Middle East custom publishing job for Saudi Arabia. Local localizing it, micro localizing it. Micro localizing, that's actually a great term. And Saudi Arabia has opened up quite a lot, I would say, over the past couple of years. But this is four or five years ago, and things were still very conservative in most of the country. And you had to sort of cater to that. Um, so you'd have to go through the course book and, like, and honestly, like, look. I was looking through pictures and images and sort of and saying, OK, can we show that picture? Is this acceptable um, for local um, by local customs? And I it was surprising to me just how much needed to be changed. And I think the people who are in the UK having to do all of those changes were even further surprised because they'd look at it and go, what's wrong with that one? I was like, well, you know, it's um, like, for example, a lady and her hair is not covered or a boy and a girl who are clearly not related kind of together and all of these little things that we just wouldn't consider to be issues in the Western world um, are culturally inappropriate here. That's interesting. Uh so it's interesting you bring that up because I think for people who are listening to this in the West who maybe have never been to the Middle East, they might be thinking like, oh my gosh, wow, this is like terrible censorship, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, look, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying, hey, you know, censorship is great, but I, I'm not saying that at all. You know, I am absolutely an advocate for free, free speech. But what I'm going to say is that I think it is difficult sometimes for Westerners to understand that some of those things are just that they, they offend they they actually offend your students and when you're in that learning experience you don't want I mean that is actually something you should think about in any context what is the emotional impact that the materials you have chosen to show are going to have on your students if you you know, for, for all of us on this call, if, if we were looking at pictures of, as you said, like a, a, a man and a woman or a young man and a woman who are not related, having a conversation, that would be totally fine for us. But for a student who is studying in Saudi Arabia, who for whom that is culturally very inappropriate, as soon as they see a picture like that, it's going to take them right out of the lesson. Like it's, it's their, their yeah. focus is immediately going to be broken and focused on that. And I feel like this is why it is actually important to think about those things. It's a really, I mean, as, as I know, you know, it, it's really tough because you want to be open. You want to be free with your students. And at the same time, 
particularly in an area like the Middle East, you really need to be culturally sensitive and respectful. And again, you need to do that everywhere. <laughs> Not just the Middle East. It's just for Westerners, I think it's so, it's such a big contrast because there are such big cultural differences. There are, and I think um, a lot of culture comes from language or language comes from culture, however you wish to, to look at that. There's like a strong connection between um, the two. So in learning another language, you are inevitably going to pick up new things from a new culture, which would, which may in some cases be completely alien to you. Um, yes. And thinking about not wanting to cause offense and not wanting to, you know, as you said, cause distractions for the minute that they're faced with an image um, of something that they are offended by, it removes them from that lesson. And then you've potentially lost them. And whatever else you do that day is wasted. Um, similarly, one of the things that we would do is localize contexts. So for example, if you've got a reading about places in a city, um, why would that city, for example, be Tokyo? They've never been. They might not ever go. They're, they're, um, you're exposing these things that are not necessarily relevant and that are completely alien to them. Whereas if you change it and make it something that is a bit more relevant, so maybe it's Dubai, maybe it's Riyadh or uh, like Amman in Jordan, somewhere that they might have been somewhere that they will have at least seen a lot in local media and will have heard a lot about from friends and from family. It just makes it a bit more attainable to them as a student. Um, actually, one of the things that we worked on in my previous um, role um, from my previous company was looking at how you can use the unknown, sorry, how you can use what is known to you to introduce something that is unknown to you. I was just about to say that. Use your existing cultural knowledge. I mean, if you, exactly as you said, like if you choose Tokyo and the students have zero information about it, you're really fighting an uphill battle. I used to think that all the time. Like I'd look at my reading, my reading would be like about Charles Dickens and I would just feel like, really? Okay, these students don't know anything about this. Yeah. Um, so one example I could think of for that was introducing um the idea of like homes and families and it was a we ended up choosing a text about a bedouin village in egypt which would have been relatively similar to any um bedouin village here in in the gulf bedouins are the how to describe it Mel? like they're the traditional nomadic tribes nomadic tribes who um move around the desert and sort of move from like desert camp to desert um camp and the the Bedouins exist all over um, all over the Middle East. So even if it's in Egypt, it's still going to be very relevant to someone here in the UAE or to someone in Oman or um, to Saudi Arabia. And then we did a comparison. So the next text was about a village in the middle of Siberia. So completely wow. different, looked completely different, felt completely different. But it was interesting to kind of pick out what was similar between the two and sort of just make that make that unknown thing seem more attainable. That's an interesting technique. So tell us a little bit about this year. Tell us about the impact of COVID-19, how that's kind of changed the way you're working, how you feel like that has changed uh, the 
publishing market in the Middle East or education? Um, so it's been an interesting year. I don't think there's a different word I can use to, to describe it accurately or fully. It's just been interesting. Like it's been challenging. I think for a lot of people in many, many ways, horrific in others. There are moments where I've been completely overwhelmed. I just wanted to curl up in the corner and cry. Um, yeah. And then there are days that feel normal, days that feel perfectly normal. Um, and it's a mixed bag, I think, as we've sort of settled into what life looks like now. Things have become much, much easier. And I'm fortunate, actually, that the UAE um, got the situation under control very quickly and very efficiently. So there was a period of three weeks uh, earlier on this year. So it must have been, I think, April, when we couldn't leave the house in Dubai for three straight weeks. Um, and even to go to the supermarket, you needed to apply online for a permit. Uh, and people would stop you and people would ask you but it really did keep people inside and sort of stop the meet to stop the meeting to stop um the virus from spreading and then they put various other measures in place whilst we were all locked down that have since become perfectly normal and honestly now life is largely normal with the exception of everybody needing to stay six feet apart and whatever you do outside where there's people around you you have to wear a mask just what about like restaurants and stuff? Can you go to restaurants? They all yeah. open? Okay. So restaurants are all open. They have reduced the seating capacity in a lot of places or in some places where it's been difficult to do that. What they've done is put these plastic partitions between um, okay, yeah. the tables, which are about six feet high. Mm. Um, so you're almost sitting in like your own little pod with whoever you're dining with. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And they've li- li- limited how many people can be on a table, um, like how many people can come at your house, how many people can be in a car if they're not from the same household. And people are following those rules. There's- how about in malls and shopping centers? I know that's a very uh, important part of daily activities. Is it just normal? You just wear a mask and a Largely normal. Wear a mask. There are hand sanitizer stations that have popped up everywhere and people use them people like you see a lot of people using it you get in trouble if you're not wearing a mask and there's some pretty hefty fines attached to that as well so I think the first time the fine is about a thousand dollars yeah that'll do it (laughs) (laughs) that will do it um and again keep a safe distance for people and what I've noticed is that people actually will call other people out it's like oh could you know could you just take a couple of steps back could you keep your distance and it's just become it's just become normal. One, they, they've put um, thermal cameras at all the entrances as well, and there's somebody sitting there monitoring. So if you walk in and you've got a high temperature, you'll be pulled to one side until, until I think you can be sort of tested or at least have a conversation with a medical professional who can determine whether or not you need to go and be tested or whether or not you're um, able to continue about them all. But there's a lot of little systems like that in place. I don't think I've ever had my temperature checked this much in my life. <laughs> it's, I swear, it's about six or seven times a day. Wow. Wow. 
Really fun gives you an idea of what your uh, standing core temperature is. I should ask, actually. I don't think I have ever asked them. <laughs> no, you just you just passed. Well done. Yeah, how has it changed? How has it changed school? Um, are schools in session, face to face? Is there more online schools? A hybrid? Because I know um, I know at least one university was online for a long time, but I'm sure it was more. So it's been. There were different initial reactions from people. The end result initially was that everybody went home and everything was um, online. And that happened quite quickly. So they ended up bringing spring break forward by two weeks um, to put systems in place where they could basically pick up again from home. Um, And immediately afterwards, everyone was at home and everything was done on Zoom. And it was a bit of a headache, I think, for people trying to adjust to that. But I would say after the space of like three weeks or so, it became normal and everyone had sort of settled into this. And it was an interesting learning curve for, I think a lot of the, a lot of the students, but also a lot of the teachers, because depending on which school you had been teaching at, it's entirely possible that you were not particularly tech savvy. Yeah, and I'm sure. A huge adjustment for you. So like you, you see a, a large spectrum of schools in the UAE from those that are, you know, the, the, the high-flying private schools that are very, very, very well-funded and technology for the teachers and for the students is not a problem, but down to some of those lower-tier private schools that serve different communities where the students might not have access. They might have, like, a smartphone at home, but they might not have a tablet or they might not have um, a laptop, and that also goes for some of the some of the teachers. I think that was an adjustment for people. Yeah, I was going to ask too, um, previously when we talked last year, I know that there were challenges with some of just the infrastructure and and being online and having a a Zoom meeting or a Google Meets type of meeting. Are there any challenges that students face just accessing the internet or having a, a reliable connection? Or do you feel like that has been dealt with in some ways because of COVID? I would say what challenges there were have certainly been dealt with. So I, I did read a statistic about the, U, the UAE being one of the most um, like technologically advanced countries when it comes to things like um, download speed. And the, I've got to say, like, I've lived here for 10 years and I've actually never had a better internet connection anywhere. It's always been incredibly fast and incredibly reliable. The challenges were around the OIP. So we still don't have access to things like FaceTime and um, like WhatsApp calling here, but they've made allowances for things like Zoom and a few other similar um, applications that allow businesses to better function at a distance. So that was one positive reaction to to the pandemic. And one thing that they did was increase everyone's internet speed. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it was. So for several months, um, the internet speed went up to about... 500 meg for free wow wow so they brought it back down and they said if you want to keep this you got to pay they did but um they've since upped it again so yeah 
But I think that was because I think a lot of people initially were quite, or rather the network was burdened because you've got oh, everyone trying to have Zoom meetings for work. And you've also got all the kids trying to have Zoom classes. And it just like, it, the bandwidth just couldn't cope. So they, they made it better. Yeah. Yeah, I remember everybody was afraid of that at the beginning that we said that uh, the internet would crash because of this, because of the mass migration to Zoom and Teams and all of that. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can tell us, how do you, do you think that your role has changed or what you're doing has changed at all? Is there, are there any new directions that your current role is taking on because of the impact of COVID-19? Um, so I think as an, as an organization, we've seen a larger intake in, um, digital learning so people have shifted to maybe newer programs that have a lot more digital support um, and as a company one of the things we did was provide extra digital support for free for some of the older titles that were maybe not so digitally supported to start with and we made all that content available for free to teachers around the world um, and we did a few campaigns to kind of drive awareness of that um, locally and the uptake was pretty positive but I think that will continue to be the trend um, because we don't know how long we're going to be in this situation maybe it's one year maybe it's five years maybe this is just the way it is now and people seem to want something that they can do face to face but if they have to pick up and go home the next day they want the ability to do that seamlessly. I also think that we can't unring the bell, you know, <laughs> like there are, uh, there are just some things that we have learned from this sort of instant mass migration online that we are not going to want to lose and that some people True. are going to want to keep. Obviously, younger students, I think in general, parents want them in school, we want them in school. Because for younger students, the socialization aspect is so important. But for adults, I mean, there's a whole new world out there. And really, yeah. you know, this is, for, even for children, there's no, why, why do they have to go to school five days a week? Why can't it be free? They're still going to get that same type of socialization, True. even with free. True. So like I was saying, a few friends of mine are primary school teachers here in different grades. So some of them teach kindergarten, some of them teach up to like grade six. And it's interesting to hear their new stories. Are they teaching in expat schools or uh, local schools? So they're teaching in expat schools. Um, and as Mel was saying, there is a preference, I think, from the students and also from the parents to have the younger kids in school as much as possible because of the, the socialization. And with older kids, it's maybe not as important because they've already developed those key skills and they can kind of pick up and tune in from anywhere and continue. Um, but thinking about some of those younger students, it's important that they have time with pen and paper because there's only like until you've developed those sort of fine motor skills like how to how to write pro like how to hold a pen properly and how to how to yeah. write with it it's difficult to translate that into digital. I mean, I have really not, I'm, I have nice handwriting, I'm just gonna say that, but- I, <laughs> I'm write, not bragging, but. <laughs> I'm not bragging, but I've got pretty nice writing. The moment <laughs> I, the moment I try to write on my iPad with the, the pencil, 
it's a disaster. Yeah. I can do it. It just doesn't look anything like as nice because the feeling of it is so, so different. So I think it, we can't teach kids that until we've taught them how to do it with um, a pen and paper initially. And you can't do that if you don't have the contact. That's interesting. What are some other observations that the primary school teachers have shared with you? Um, I think the kids get quite frustrated because there's still social distancing even within the classroom as much as possible. Um, so the yeah. teachers have masks on and face shields and then there's like a plastic screen in front of their desk and then the kids can't leave their desk. So the, kid, the poor kids are in the room for like six, seven, eight hours a day and they don't re move except to go for lunch and to go to the bathroom. That's very hard for it's little balls really, really of energy. Hard. Yeah, and they're struggling with that. And obviously the, the teachers are struggling to find things to do that can stimulate them appropriately and kind of burn off some of that energy because they're limited as to what they can do in terms of like arts and crafts and games and like activities that would have them running around. Yeah. Ugh, so hard, so hard. Really? Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us where, where would you say you are now? Speaking in terms of where I am geographically i would say we are coming out of it oh, that's so nice that's so nice we are coming out of it what about as an industry what about in terms of your role where would you say you guys are in, and what do you think the future is going to hold um i foresee us initially re-juggling some of our products to give them a better digital offering um, to make it easier to transition between home learning and classroom learning and we're already seeing that and we're already having people ask us for that type of thing um, and for some for some requests we're able to do that immediately and for some we have to sort of go back to the drawing board and think about things it's like okay how can we do that is it worth us doing this in some cases like should we put resources into developing digital for something that is maybe only going to last a couple more years anyway, or should we be funding something that's going to last for 10 years? Longer term, I could see a lot of educational publishers moving to a subscription-based model that gives people access to as little or as much of the content as they want. So they could take bits and pieces from different courses and access them remotely. When you say more easy, like easy to transfer digital content, what specifically do you mean? So uh, if you think about the ESL classroom at the moment, pandemic aside, you would have your traditional textbook probably, um, students might have a, a dictionary which might be attached to the course book or it might be a separate book and quite a chunky one uh, that they might have a supplementary grammar book the teachers would either photocopy for them or they might have their own copy of it that they can use to do extra exercises. Um, there might be additional teachers resources that the teacher would make copies of and distribute to the class like extra activities or tests or things like that. And you might have as a publisher three or four different textbooks that are the same level. So for example, they're all mapped to the common European framework but there might be aspects of 
those different courses that appeal to different teachers teaching the same program so you, you might want to say oh I want to do the reading from this one because it's a bit better but I might want to supplement it with the grammar from that one because it's a bit more comprehensive but then again the writing project and this one is so much more fun um, as it is right now you can't mix and match easily well you, without outside outside of the physical classroom you mean right exactly when you're in the classroom um, you can wait in that copier line and make as many copies exactly. whereas if you have a subscription-based model you have access to all the content and you can basically create a lesson by saying okay we're going to do this reading this speaking uh this i want this test at the end of the week uh, and sort of pick and choose what activities you want and it gives teachers a lot more freedom to do what they want to do or it gives them the freedom to respond better to their students needs that's so interesting i really suspect that subscription i can't why can't i say that word today um Based model is really going to take off because it's it's so true. I mean, first of all, if if there is going to be an element of online learning going forward, even after the pandemic has subsided around the world, well, it's much easier to be able to pull those materials off your computer off the internet than to try and copy and scan and all of that stuff. And then, of course, everybody wants a subscription model. I mean, that's great yeah. for a publisher too probably massively reduce their costs different parts of our publishing house already have that model and it works right. really well for them so uh medical journals academic journals even some of the higher education materials already have that business model and it works for them mm. it just hasn't yet been rolled out in education or mm. nelt but we're but we're going there we're going there i think do you have any final thoughts, any final uh, things you want to share with us about this year, the future, teaching, learning, anything? Anything. Um, I, I'm very fortunate in that I work for a very progressive company. So we've always had fairly flexible rules um, about certain things. Um, one positive change that I've seen is our working from home policy. So and they're supporting with um, like home office equipment and so on. Was there resistance to this type of working model previously? Because I remember that you traveled a lot from a professional culture. Was there resistance to doing more online work as, as opposed to face-to-face? -face? At a company level, no. Actually, I think that's going to be, for a lot of companies, I think that's going to be, that. I hate the expression, the new normal, but Me whatever too. becomes sort of, accepted as what we have collectively decided is normal, I think will include the option for many people to work from home at least several days a week. But I think, you know, it's interesting, I've spoken about this with some other people as well, um, because people miss the camaraderie, the community of the office. And also there are some things that just work True. better in person. True. So for example, a, a meeting where you have to make some decisions, like it's 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 going to be much more quickly completed if you're doing that in person than if you're doing yeah. that online. So it, I've remembered what I was going to say, and it kind of connects with Amy's question and what you've just said. So I did travel a lot previously. So up until the end of February, I would say I would be away four weeks out of five um for most of the week at a time as well and that would be to 
um, spend time with my colleagues in our offices in Cairo and in Amman and Jordan. And then the other trips would be around around the region to visit our schools and to visit our universities and to visit our distributors just to make sure that business is still running smoothly. I think a lot of that travel is over. I think within reason, yeah. I think we've realized this year just how much we can do without having to spend so much money on travel. But what was the purpose of traveling to those places that now can be done online? And can it really all be done online? No, but I think online can reduce the amount of travel that we have to do. I think maybe in the West we heard already or were already adapting to this model, but Middle East culture is still very face to face. So if they can see you in person, they would much prefer to do that, which Mm. um, I understand. But instead of visiting them in person every month, maybe you visit them in person every eight to 12 weeks and then fill in the gaps with an online meeting and just makes everyone's time more manageable because I've realized that rather than running around the region and spending days talking to these different people I can condense it all into a rather hectic day but a hectic day of just sort of back-to-back zoom meetings and I've done a week's what I've squished a week's worth of travel into a day that's that's astounding and I think those are some of the transformative uh aspects that this year actually has brought thank you so much for taking the time to interview with us amy anything you want to add well uh, yeah thank you so much for your time i know it's late in the evening for you uh but it's great to great to hear some more about your background and what you're going through thank you so much yay Let's keep in touch.